Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Uh, with that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Todd A., Gordon S., Jackie A., and Paul M. We have on Scott Hicks, Vice President, Corporate Development of Luminex Resources, an Ecuador-focused gold, copper, explorer, and developer advancing the flagship Condor project, among other projects in Ecuador. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange on the December LR and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol L-U-M-I-F. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Scott, why don't we start off by you telling us about what attracted you to natural resources, the sector in general, and then tell us why you ended up coming over to the Lumina team and Luminex Resources. Sure, so you know, I started out my career in investment banking here in Vancouver, and, and obviously there was a lot of, uh, a lot of mining activity and, and it was one of the predominant kind of fee drivers in, in our industry there and uh, kind of over a decade uh, grew to grew to love it and, and the intrigue and and then this uh, fairly unique opportunity came up to join you know Ross, Marshall and Leo over here at the Lumina team um, and you know work on the things they were putting together both in, at the time in Brazil and, and then our main public companies now um, in Ecuador and you know, Ecuador is obviously a, a, a bit of a new frontier, and these guys were, were fairly early in, in uh, 2014. And uh, the project package looked interesting at the time, and, and obviously we've added to it uh, fairly significantly since since I started. So uh, that's kind of what drew me, drew me to the team here. So the Lumina Group has had a series of successes going back to Regalito, uh, Northern Peru Copper, Global Copper, Lumina Royalty, and then Lumina Copper. Tell us some of the keys and characteristics uh, that were in play to make these series of successes. And then tell us some of the things that maybe were unexpected or maybe did not work out as planned. Sure. So, you know, I think going back to the Lumina Copper days, the group's objective was really to look for, you know, porphyry systems that have large scale potential. Um, obviously, Leo heading our geology team um, really was looking for deposits that, you know, he could add a lot of pounds fairly fast and you know they took the same approach um, when looking for projects in Ecuador and, and certainly that's what led us to the Congrejos deposit um, and then on you know obviously Leo was a big part of de-risking the projects and but Marshall's background is more um, you know technically focused as far as getting PEAs, PFS feasibility studies across the line and uh, you know that's really where he came in and started to uh, de-risk all these projects in key areas, you know, whether it's metallurgy, um, geotechnical, all the different areas, you'd look to de-risk over time and get people comfortable um, and get major companies comfortable as you look to advance and, and then sell the projects. It's it's really not the group's uh, philosophy to, to build. Um, it is the, you know, the group's kind of bread and butter to advance these projects and, and look to move them on to, to large scale companies. And, and usually, you know, they're, they're large projects that, that do require a lot of capital. And you see that uh, with our current project at Congrejos as, as well. Um, 
I guess some of the things that might not have worked, um, you know, we did try, we did try um, in Anfield Gold to get uh, one of our, to get a gold production vehicle going uh, through uh, the building of the Karinga mine. Um, you know, in the end, that was just a project that uh, that got a little bit smaller than than we thought was worth our time. So we we ended up uh, selling that to Sarabi. But but the silver lining out of that is Anfield really got merged into um, a three way merger with with Trek and uh, and Newcastle Gold, which is now the current Equinox Gold. And obviously, you know, they've added assets since and are, are building the Arizona project in Brazil. And 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 Ross is the chairman of that. So. You know, we we ended up getting the gold production vehicle that we were looking for out of it, just in a very uh, different way. But um, you know, that was a very different story than than Lumina Gold and Luminex, which is more the group's bread and butter of the the exploration and development curve. Right, and I would just say that the team there has the ability to to put together a, a build a project out if they have to. I mean, if you look at Equinox, obviously that's taking place and. We'll be commencing with other projects, uh, certainly with uh, you know Newcastle and, and and the advancement of that project there in California, and so I think that's really interesting that the group really has that ability to do both, whether sell off a project or to build it out if if needed, uh, to prove it up uh, makes sense, and then also too with with some of the projects that you guys like Anfield, the example you provided there where the project just doesn't fit. Uh, the group understands when it's time to kind of cut the cord and move on, whereas uh, a number of other companies in the sector will try to to live it out and and try to dilute their way out and and just kind of hang with a, a project that really never worked, but they'll just stay with it anyway. And so it's really good to have a team that recognizes when an option is exhausted or a project is not worth looking at any further, and and they move on to something else. So I think that's key as well. So the Lumina team has been together for a while. Uh, can you give us kind of a look inside the group and how this team manages to agree? in a common direction throughout all these different projects and ventures. And then tell us why the Lumina talent is perhaps better than competing teams with similar business models. You know, I, I think everyone's kind of got their their silo in the group and, and obviously, you know, Ross is there on the high level strategy and and obviously a strong uh, financial backer, which which is a in this market, frankly, a pretty key differentiator in and of itself. I mean Obviously, not a, a great bullish market uh, towards the end of last year, but still able to raise you know twenty million dollars to advance Congrejos. So, you know, I think that's a very unique attribute of the group. There's only you know a handful of uh, of groups in Canada that I think you know have that ability and capacity right now. Um, Leo and Marshall have both been with the team since the early thousands, and you know, done so many different projects and so many different jurisdictions um obviously native uh you know not native but sorry spanish speakers that uh and marshall speaks portuguese you know they've spent a lot of time in these countries um a lot of time on the ground and uh you know i, I think that's a bit unique just the amount of years between the, the technical staff here and how much uh time they've spent in these different countries and the networks that provides to to source projects and and look at new things, and you know the, the ability really of the group to set up to set up management in country, for example. And you know in Ecuador, we obviously have an office in Quito. We have a an in-country manager there by the name of uh, Diego Benalcazar, uh, you know Ecuadorian uh, geologist, phenomenal knowledge of of the country and 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 the lay of the land there. So really, you know the group's ability to to source local talent, 
use the networks that we have through South America um, to advance these projects in a in a pretty fast uh, manner. I mean, if if we put our nose to the grindstone, uh, you know, we can get a lot of technical work done done fast. So uh, and, and done well. So, you know, I think that's some of the unique attributes of the group. So the natural resource market today, so we've had a first pop in this cycle back in 2016. In your view, where are we today in terms of sentiment, and what are your thoughts on where we go from here in terms of gold, copper, and silver? You know, I uh, candidly, I'm obviously a bit frustrated. I, I think, you know, about a year and a half ago, you asked me the same question. I would have, I actually did accurately predict what the Fed just did, which is kind of start to roll over here. And it looks like they're going to have to go the other way, despite the rhetoric about uh, the strong economy, et cetera. Uh, what I wouldn't have guessed is that uh, the dollar would still be so strong and we'd have all these headwinds against gold. Uh, I would have guessed that, uh, you know, having had the Fed do what they just did, gold would probably be uh, north of $1,400. And, and that was certainly our view when we were putting together these, these large-scale uh, gold assets in Ecuador. Um, you know, I think long term, I'm still constructive on gold. And, and and I think as the Fed continues to go the other way, you know, people might wake up to that a bit more. You know, I think on the copper side, it's obviously a key component of our Congreos project. It's about 20% of the revenue of the project. You know, I think the long term fundamentals are good. It might be it might be a bit flat over the next year or two. But uh, on the long term, you know, you've got the declining grade profiles. Uh, of existing mines, not a lot of new builds in the pipe right now, and I, I think you know as we continue to shift the economy more to a, an electrified place, um, you know copper is going to be a big part of that. So uh, bullish on on those two, you know silver, it's uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me, and, and not something I've spent a lot of time on, and, and candidly not a large part of our projects, but uh, it is interesting to watch the gold silver ratio here. I guess we're almost at. Uh, getting pretty close to an all-time uh, high or, you know, in that area. I think we're getting close to the 90 uh, on the ratio today. So it's, uh, that's an interesting one to watch, and, and probably someone will make a lot of money on the, on the snapback there. So, Scott, outside of the focus at Luminex, which is obviously gold and, and copper mostly, um, what other metal or other sector within natural resources do you see have an attractive setup as this cycle starts to run? Yeah, I mean, obviously, people are spending a lot of time on battery metals. It's something our groups looked at as well, um, outside of, you know, kind of our more conventional uh, copper-gold focus. So, you know, we did look at cobalt. We we have looked at vanadium, um, and we've looked at lithium. And, you know, I think the thinking there is it's it's a, it's early days in that race, and uh, it's tougher to pick a horse. Um, but we, we think there's obviously very good potential in cobalt. But Unfortunately, uh, you know, not as easy to find good projects globally. Um, you know, I think vanadium is, is an interesting one as we get some of these grid scale batteries coming around. Uh, so we're definitely keeping an eye on that closely. Um, but, you know, I think for us, it, it really is the, the, the gold copper that uh, we, you know, we always come back to. Absolutely. I so I'll hang my hat on uranium as a something outside of, of gold. Uh, you know, gold really is the good old steady. And uh, there's certainly not a problem with being in that space because it really is, even with even with top good projects at, at today's gold price, you can still do quite well uh, if you have a good management team and you have a good setup. 
um, and you have all kind of all the parts needed to do something, the current gold price seems to work uh, pretty well. Obviously, higher prices would be good, but uh, it can certainly work at these levels as well. So let's talk Luminex for a sec. Uh, tell the audience about how this company was set up, the, the capital structure, uh, the key projects, management, and the key backers on the shareholder roster. So I think that the key to understanding, you know, Luminex and kind of how it came around is is really going back to what what's changed in in Ecuador and you know, and for those that don't follow the country, in 2016 they opened up the concession system for the first time in basically a decade, and what that allowed was, you know, a bit of a rush for um prospective areas in the country and a lot of um a lot of people took advantage of that. And, you know, we had a unique advantage in the sense that um, our predecessor company to Lumina was called Odin. And, you know, they had worked in the country for about 30 years. So they had a they had a very healthy database, um, you know, soil, rock samples throughout all different areas of the country. And, and that's really what allowed us to stake these prospective areas. And, you know, at the time between Condor and Congreos, our two gold projects, it really was a gold-focused company, but we saw, you know, these these early-stage tenements coming up that were highly prospective for copper, and they were, you know, the way the system works in Ecuador, you you bid a work commitment for four years, and then you get a chance to go work on the properties. Um, so from that perspective, they're fairly cheap to acquire, and and that's really what led us to bid on all these different um, on all these different concessions. So at the time, this is all in Lumina Gold. Um, and, and we put together about 135,000 hectare uh, land package throughout the country. So we were we were probably the second largest landholder in Ecuador, uh, behind uh, Keith Barron, who who found uh, Fruta del Norte. Um, you know, he's there he's there in a big big way um, through Arania. But um, anyway, you know, the group's history, if you look back, had really been to kind of create wealth through these spinouts where. You take your most advanced project and, and leave those kind of in a single purpose vehicle. So for us, that's Congrejos, which we put a PA out on last year. And we spun out all these different uh, early stage concessions as well as the Condor project into Luminex. Now, when we spun it out, we already had agreements with the first Quantum and Anglo-American um, to earn in on some of these early stage copper projects. So first Quantum's earning in on two of our properties and, and Anglo's earning in on a very large area in the center of the country called the Pegasus Concessions. So, you know, it was nice having that backing as well as the Condor uh, resources, the kind of core asset of the company um, when we spun those, when we spun it out. Um, and that's kind of the genesis of the, the company. You know, we we wanted to compress the capital structure, so we uh, we did a 0.15 share ratio for every Lumina shareholder. They got 0.15 shares in Luminex, so it's the exact same ownership structure, just really basically a seven to one rollback on the cap structure um, for the new for the new company. And then um, you know, fast forward since we did the spin out, we now have an earning agreement with BHP. On one of our properties called Tarkey, um, and you know that's going to be, I think, one one of our more interesting copper projects within the portfolio. Um, and then we've just been continuing to advance these other early stage concessions to to really get a sense of of what we have. Okay, and can you give us the the shares out on Luminex and also um, any any of the key backers you'd like to mention on the shareholder roster? 
like I said, it was really basically identical to, to the Lumina shareholders. So you, you had Ross, BD at about 16%, and then the rest of management uh, collectively together, an additional 10. So you know, between Ross and management and Luminex, about 26% held uh, by management and him. And then the share structure, about 41 million shares outstanding right now. Uh, we had raised 7 million Canadian inside Lumina uh, last July with the purpose of using all that cash for the spin-out vehicle. So we put about $5 million US on the Luminex balance sheet to start with. And uh, we're sitting at about uh, just over $3 million as of December and, and you know probably closer to, to two in the bank uh, at this point right now. Okay, so tell us about the planned expenditures for 2019, uh, now that we're on that topic. And then also, what will be funding the company going forward in terms of earn-in, partner carry, equity financings, et cetera? You know, there's kind of, there's for a small company, it's got a lot going on, but there, there's about five key components. So so you've got the, the Pegasus areas, which is going to be self-funded um, by Anglo, or self-funding, I should say, with Anglo putting money into that. Um, so their commitment there is is $57.3 million over, over seven years. So $50 million in the ground and and uh, $7.3 million in, in cash to us. And that would earn them a, a 60% interest in, in the projects. Um, and then you've got uh, First Quantum earning into Arcadius and Cascus. So those projects are also uh, fully funded as, as long as First Quantum's there. Uh, they're spending $38.5 million over five years to earn 51%. And then you've got Tarkey which is a copper project that BHP's just uh, agreed to earn in on. So they're spending $42 million over six years to earn 60%. So, so those three earn-ins are, are, you know, on their own and they're funded. We, we operate the first quantum um, earn-in right now, but Angle and BHP will op operate those properties um, and, and we won't be working on them anymore. They'll just be earning in. And then you've got, the Condor project, which is a, a four million ounce gold project, uh, just below Mirador and Fruta del Norte, uh, which are both under construction right now, and that's really where we're going to do a bit of drilling this year um, in an area called the Camp Zone, and we're also looking at different development options around the existing four million ounce resource there, and I think. You know, post the drilling at the camp zone, we'll go and decide what we want the work program to look for that year. So that's an area that we will have to fund ourselves. And then on top of that, we've got four other concessions um, that are 100% owned by us that our geologists will continue to work on. So that's an area we need to fund ourselves. So, you know, it's it's something that will crystallize in the next couple months what the what the work going forward is now that we know um, BHP is coming on Tarkey. And once we kind of get the results from the condor drilling, um, to just get a bit bit better picture of what the next six to twelve months looks like for us. So Luminex has been able to attract a blue chip set of earners, uh, and partners being Anglo American at Pegasus, uh, First Quantum at Orkegas and Cascus, uh, and then BHP at Tarkey. All while Luminex has ninety percent of the core asset in Condor. So with this cast of characters being with Luminex. Tell us the importance from your perspective as to why investors might need to pay attention here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and each property is a little bit different, but you know, these companies were clearly drawn to to the potential here in in Ecuador, and 
you know, if you look along the Andes, it's, uh, you know, no shortage of copper porphyry systems. And these are obviously three players that are in the copper space in a, in a big way. And, you know, I think there's, there's not, I can't, well, I can't think of any other company that really has uh, this diversity of, of large cap players um, in the name. Uh, and obviously, you know, we think putting together this package kind of, of seven years of, funding that's about $140 million U.S. in aggregate is, is very unique. Um, the, the flip side, I think, is, is BHP and Angle will really take their, their time here um, and do very systematic uh, exploration of those properties. So, you know, may not be drilling at those properties until, say, 2020. Um, first, Quantum, we plan on drilling Orchidius. That's one of the two properties they're in and on this year. Uh, we've got a fairly clear uh, outline of a of a copper molly deposit uh, or potential deposit there that we've run a bunch of IP over and you know that's one that we'll we will drill this year so you know I, I think there's a high probability that that one of these areas turns into uh, a successful project over time and and you know we're obviously well positioned to keep um, at least 30% of any of the projects that any of these guys find. And uh, and I think that's unique from that perspective. And I mean, at, at Condor, um, it is a, it's a lower grade large deposit, but I mean, there's a, a phenomenal amount of mineralization on the property. Um, you know, when we, when we acquired it, uh, there was an 11 million ounce uh, mineral resource that was done by the previous operator on it. Um, we treat that more as a mineral inventory and then we updated it and put, you know, our normal economic parameters and, and, and constrained pitch cells on it. And that's kind of what got us to the 4 million ounce resource we're at now. But, you know, there's there's just so much uh, gold on the property. So for those of uh, the people who are listening who do believe in a, in a higher gold price environment in the next several years, I mean, the project has, has phenomenal optionality from that perspective. So you know, I, I think that's kind of a long-winded way of answering your question, but, uh, you know, to have all these assets in a in a $30 million market cap company, you know, there's a lot of potential here. Put the Condor project, I know it's earlier stage quite a bit, and, and, and everything hasn't been, you know, fully uh, proven up yet and, and uh, expanded, which there is some a lot of room for that to happen. But put it into perspective uh, compared to the, the Fruta del Norte project that's being constructed uh Blending uh, gold. Uh, give us, give us some kind of compare, compare the projects, compare and contrast for us. You know the grade a little bit, and and obviously we know this is earlier stage and smaller. But give us, give us an idea for investors who kind of follow the other bigger projects that are under construction. So I mean, Condor is a bit of a different beast. So obviously, Fruta is a is a phenomenal um, underground resource. Condor's got really two segments to it. It's got epithermal deposits in the north. Um, and then it's got a, a large uh, gold copper porphyry system in the south called Santa Barbara. And, th- and those two areas make up the, the 4 million ounces. So, you know, the, the better analog probably for the, the property is really actually our Congreos project in Lumina Gold. You know, you look at Congreos, it's, uh, it's a bit higher grade by about, uh, you know, 0.1, 0.15 on the gold side higher. So Santa Barbara is kind of a, a 0.5 gold deposit with 0.1% copper. Um, and then, you know, Congreos has some pretty unique attributes that, that, that make it very economic, like a low strip ratio. 
Um, whereas at Santa Barbara, you know, the mineralization is a bit is a bit deeper, um, and the strip ratio is a bit higher. So, you know, you do need a whole a higher gold price to to make it work. But um, up up further north, above Fruta, you've got Mirador getting constructed there, so a large uh, copper gold porphyry. So that you know that would be analogous in terms of of scale and and also open pit. Um, you know that that would be an interesting comparison of, of one uh, just up the road, and and obviously a lot of infrastructure is being put in in that area. You know, power lines, etc., and roads for uh, for those two projects that will both be coming online here in the next 12 months. Okay, so give us the status of the earn-in agreements with each party, uh, Anglo First Quantum um, and BHP. Uh, give us the status on that, and and. Just for the people who aren't aware of it, can you just give us a status on whether or not they're fully locked down, uh, bind, you know, binding and definitive, or is there some stuff yet to, to happen on those agreements? Sure. So, so first, Quantum, well, I'll go in order of the way they were announced, I guess. So first, Quantum's, you know, fully locked down. Um, they've they've hit their spend uh, on year one for Akedius, and that is advancing to drilling. Um, like I said, we're the operator there. They have the option to take over um, the project as operator uh, after three years. So, you know, we're we're kind of just over a year in here, um, and that that project's been going well. Um, you know, the the drill program there is is about 4,500 meters that's planned over eight holes, and, and we'll have a pretty good sense of of what's on the property post that drill program. And, and we do have that outlined in our uh, investor deck if people are curious. Um, Anglo that is fully locked down. That has a definitive agreement on it. Um, they've been operating the property since basically last November. They're doing very systematic exploration. It's it's hard to impart over over the uh, phone how large the uh, the land package is, but it truly is a, a massive land package up there. It's it's about sixty seven thousand hectares. What they're looking for is is kind of clustered copper porphyries that like you'd see in Chile. Uh, so that's a focus for them. And you know, our geologist prior to handing it over to Anglo had found uh, a bunch of of good signs for porphyry. I mean, there's obviously a lot of gold in the area. There there been alluvial gold production, probably about a hundred thousand ounces worth in in the north at Pegasus A. Um, but looks like there's porphyry systems sitting under that. So their geologists are doing the work right now, and, and then they'll probably fly ZTEM over the whole area uh, to really zone in on, on where they want to drill uh, going forward. Tarkey uh, with BHP, we had just announced that deal a couple weeks ago here, so we're working towards a definitive agreement. Uh, the goal really is kind of by the end of June uh, to have that in place and then switch operatorship and pass it over to their team there. Um, and you know the thinking is you could probably do IP uh, over the whole area to, to zoom in on where you want to drill. That combined with all the work our geologists had done uh, should give them a pretty good sense of where the high priority targets are. Okay, well that sounds great because I think it's important for the audience because so many times in the resource sector we have people that you know oh I've got a letter of intent or I've got this uh, MOI or uh, some kind of MOU or some kind of a, a paper they're waving around, but it really doesn't, it's just a, you know, they try to say they have a contract for the sake of having a contract, but they really don't, it doesn't have any teeth. And uh, you get that so much in the resource sector. Uh, and it, and you, we're seeing that a little bit in the uranium sector now where we have people waving these these meaningless papers uh, 
for no reason really. And so it's really good to hear that you guys have solid lockdown agreements and that it progresses quickly and it's a no BS type setup. So I think that's really important for the for the audience to understand uh, the difference between a uh, a contract with no teeth and a contract that really really means something uh, in the in the big scheme of things. So I want to talk Condor for just a moment, a little bit more. Give us the plans for advancing the project and kind of give us a time frame along with that. So tell us where the status is if if we're going to a PEA on that project and kind of give us a time frame of as you guys want to advance this. Sure. So the, the two kind of key areas of work that are happening right now are, as I mentioned, we're planning on drilling the camp zone. So that's up in the north by those epithermal areas I was talking about. So the, the biggest deposit up there is, is Los Cuyas. You got a, just under, you know, just under a million ounces in indicated and about 0.5 in inferred. So between the, the two categories, you got about 1.3 million ounces of Cuyas around a 0.7 gold grade. Um, the camp zone's right adjacent to the hut. So we're gonna drill about 1200 meters there over four holes um, in April and May. And what we're hoping to see is that, uh, you know, we can find another basically at surface, uh, you know, chunk of uh, ounces there. And that really might help um, bring that that epithermal area into uh, into a you know place where you could do a PEA on it. The uh, the other thing we've do, done is engaged a group called IMC out of Tucson, and and they've really looked at you know what would the best way to develop this project be. Is it is it just do a PEA on the epithermal area? Is it uh, have maybe a central plant between the epithermals in the north and Santa Barbara in the south, and you could cherry pick some of the better ore from Santa Barbara and, and go to a central plant. Um, so they're really reviewing those kind of options for us right now. And I think on the back of finishing that work and the drilling at the camp zone, we'll be able to give the market a, a more definitive picture of what the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months looks like at, at Condor. So I, I think, you know, keep your eye out for uh, the drill results at the camp zone. Um, hopefully we would have those out in kind of the June time frame. And, and then obviously with that, we'd like to kind of, announce uh, what we're thinking for the asset going forward. So talk to us high level about Ecuador for a moment and why management likes this jurisdiction. Uh, give us kind of a flavor for the regulatory environment there now, the tax uh, structure, ownership, royalty requirements for mining projects. You know, st stepping back, the, the real and primary reason we like it is the geology. I mean, the geology is fantastic. There's, there's mineralization pretty much seemingly everywhere you look. Um, it is extremely underexplored, it, you know, and I think the reasons for that are both, uh, well, primarily government driven in the past, but also, you know, it is a harder area to explore. Candidly, there's more tree cover, uh, et cetera, than say, you know, up in the Atacama or something like that. So, um, you know, the geology is the primary reason. What's really changed since since we were there, we came into the country is obviously, and Lundin's done a phenomenal job of this in, in trailblazing is, you know, you've now seen these investment protection agreements with the government. Um, people have, have arranged the taxes they need to pay. Um, there is just so people know, and I mean, it's, it's very, up, they're very upfront about it and we're upfront about it. It's, it is a uh, constitutional requirements that the government receives a 50% benefit from any project and and that's on an NPV basis um, 
and the the way they really get there is is the taxes and then the NSR royalties they have on the projects. So um, there's a 15% profit sharing tax and a 22% corporate tax rate. So to simplify, I mean, you can really think about it as a as a 30 37% tax. Um, and then there's a, a royalty range that's about three to eight percent, and and this used to be five to eight percent, and they've just recently reduced it to the three level potentially. So the way you'd go about it is you would submit um, your project parameters to the government. You would start negotiations on uh, exploitation terms. You would get to an agreement around your royalty rate and. Um, and in some instances, uh, prepaying of that royalty a little bit to, um, you know, have some money go out to communities uh, earlier um, while the project's being constructed, um, and that that kind of forms the picture of of the money that goes out the door uh, to the government. No, I mean they used to have, uh, and what really was the killer was a, a windfall tax uh, in the country, and it was it really stemmed from coming out of the oil industry. Um, now, Lundin, when they signed their agreement, uh, had a workaround for the windfall tax um, that was fairly uh, hard to explain to people. Now, the nice thing is they've eliminated the windfall tax entirely uh, as of 2018. So, you know, reducing the royalty rates, uh, getting rid of the windfall tax, simplifying the system. So everything's directionally moved in the right way. Um, and they've also, you know, made small changes like VAT refunds um, and and reducing the capital gains tax um, rates as well. So so the country's really done a lot to try to bring um, more mining investment in and show that it is a place that's open for business. So tell us briefly about uh, so on Condor there's there's ninety percent ownership by Luminex. Tell us about the pension fund there that's involved with the other ten percent, and then also um, give us the differences in permitting time. Uh, Ecuador versus, say, a Canada. Uh, give us just a quick flavor for the permitting timeline. Sure. So on the Condor side, um, you know, we're right on the Peruvian border there. So the, the military's ownership was a was a legacy out of that. Um, you know, they're a ten percent holder. They don't uh, they don't currently contribute capital, um, and they don't currently you know, uh, over, or there's no kind of joint technical committee or anything like that. You know, they're they're just a silent uh, owner, you know, I think longer term, that's probably something that you would look to consolidate 100% of, um, you know, when the, when the time was right. Um, and I don't think there would be any opposition to that on their side. And, you know, it's, it's discussions we haven't, uh, haven't had yet, um, aside from, you know, obviously just touching base every now and again, but it's something you probably would look to consolidate 100% of. So, so actually, just to follow up on that, isn't that kind of a good, kind of a good setup, knowing that the the, the government already has, in some form, a piece in that, so that could be used as a really a kind of a nice uh, optionality type situation there with with the ownership, uh, with the pension fund there, and then also give us the timeline uh, for the audience on regulatory in terms of getting a project permitted to go to, you know, development and mining stage. Give us give us a timeline idea and compare that to what it might take the amount of time in Canada to get the same thing done. And then also yeah. tell us briefly about the local community and the local community support uh, for the project, the Condor project. 
Okay. Yeah. So on the, on the on the government, I mean, yes, I think I think having having them there is helpful. I mean, they're obviously would like to see revenues and dollars come out of that project for them at some point. So I think to your point, it, it is a positive. Um, on the on the permitting side of things, I'll I'll give you the most uh, candid view I can. I think this is probably the one area where Ecuador has really struggled in the last year, and not not so much on the permitting in the way that. You know, usually people think about getting to a construction. What's been more challenging uh, for them is actually they've just had so much interest um, in the country and, and so many applications um, coming in. It's really the drilling permits that have actually been the holdup. And they used to have require you to do a full-blown um, environmental impact assessment to drill, um, and that took quite a bit of time. And the ministry can't, you know, it's fairly uh, busy with all the applications. Then in July, their their remedy to that was to come out with these scout drilling regulations that allowed you to do exploratory drilling off of off of 30 platforms with really just getting an industrial water use permit and not having to do a full-blown EIS or EIA. And, you know, we found even getting the industrial water use permits is, is still a bit uh, slow. So I'd say that has been, you know, one of the bigger holdups on the exploration side in country. Now that said, on the construction side of permitting, you know, Lundin, if you look at them as an example, did their permitting very fast. I, you know, I think it was somewhere in the 12 to 18 months type range uh, to get to get their uh, construction permits. So, you know, that would obviously be faster than a, than a Canada or the or a U.S. So it, it's a bit interesting where the time goes on the on the permitting side. Um, so a bit more heavy on the front end, but then perhaps lighter on the back end um, from a construction perspective. So that that's kind of a, a quick overview of of the realities on the ground there from a from a permitting perspective. Okay, and tell us about the local community and and the support and and some of the work you guys are doing to, you know, kind of uh, work on the local community, which which obviously would be key support for for building something out. Sure. So you know, I, I, this is a key. This is a very key point, and and definitely a, a great question. Um, and and you know, I think when you go back and look at the partners we've brought in in Luminex. These are obviously companies that are are very good at at this, you know, uh, BHP, Anglo, um, First Quantum. It's an area they're extremely focused on. So when you kind of get more towards the Peruvian border and on the east side of the the mountains in the country, there's typically more uh, Shuar indigenous people. Um, a lot of different communities and 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 concession by concession can be very different. Um, you know, there's no blanket answer. Uh, it's really important to get in and, and find out, um, you know, who the stakeholders are in the communities, um, talk to them about their needs. Um, usually it's, it's you know, providing uh, jobs, uh, providing a bit of community support, uh, and really getting that social license to operate. So, you know, our team spends a lot of time on that uh, in the new concessions and around Condor. Um, and, you know, I think in general we've had a positive experience you know some of these early stage concessions that we picked up in 20, 2016 uh, they've taken a little bit of time to get the social license to you know to be on the land and, and whether it's taking samples or or you know building drill pads that are tedious or different things it's 
it has taken time and, and you know work but uh but it's it's important work and you kind of have to build that level of trust and you have to be there and be present um you know consistently uh and you contrast that with the other side of the country congreos over by machala um you know that's more of a colonos uh area um so we don't have shuar indigenous people say by congreos um but that said you know there's still communities obviously six, seven kilometers from the project and, and it's important to, you know, be providing jobs and, and be in touch with the community and, and really, um, you know, consult them uh, as the process goes along. And, you know, you never know with these mineral projects how long it'll take to get something into production or, or you know, whether it's going to be successful. But, you know, keeping the community informed is, is obviously very important. And, you know, Ecuador, obviously, as part of their EIS, uh, process has a fair amount of consultation um, built in, but uh, it's something you really can't do enough of. Absolutely. No, I think it's a key point, uh, a key part of uh, these types of projects is as you advance them and and things start to get closer to uh, a potential project that gets developed and a mining operation that commences for, you know, many, many, many years and, and how that impacts the, the community. So why should investors be taking a stake in Luminex today? What would you say to potential investors listening? You know, I, I think I think you've got just an, an absolutely ton of potential at these three earn-in projects. They're getting funded in a way that's not dilutive to Luminex shareholders. You've got a core asset in Condor that's, you know, got 4 million ounces there and, and gives you a lot of potential in a higher gold price environment. Um, and you know, a very, very well drilled project, over 100,000 meters of, of drilling. So, so, you know, well understood. And, you know, we've still got extra 100, uh, 100% owned concessions in there that, you know, our geologists are, are working and, um, and there's, you know, even more potential in that. So I think we've got a really good in-country team there that uh, is working the concessions and, and a great team of geologists on the ground. And then you've got, uh, you've got a team with a track record in the in the Canadian office um, with with Ross with Marshall with Leo who've worked together for you know 15 years and uh, and have done this a lot of times before so I think it's uh, it's a unique investor proposition from that point of view and uh, and you know that we're not even we're not ruling out looking at at other early stage projects where we think that'll add value to the company as well so lots of lots of avenues for growth a lot of external funding, uh, and in a country that, you know, really hasn't been explored properly yet. How can investors reach out to the company for more information? They can just send an email to the uh, info at Luminex, uh, and that comes that basically comes to me. I'm always happy to take calls and, and answer questions when people have them. And Scott, what's the website again? It's uh, luminexresources.com. Scott, well, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew.